Welcome to Cloudlandia. Well, welcome yeah. to Cloudlandia, Mr. Sullivan. Yes. Yes. And it's Here feeling we are. more like home. It's feeling like more, lot more like home. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like that, you know? It's yeah. so much. Yeah. It, it's, I'm really getting a different perspective on time now. Like, I'm really noticing mm -hmm. that as I'm 55 now. And I have a very different perspective on time than I did when I was 35 and a very different perspective than when I was, you know, 25. And it's a really interesting because I remember thinking distinctly, you know, at 25, I think, or maybe a little, I think when I first started strategic coach, 1997, I was 31. And I remember thinking then even that five years out seemed like a long amount of time, like a, a distant, untellable future, you know, mm -hmm. and you've really, you know, you opened my eyes to this. I think that's evolved for you too, though, a 25 year vista, mm -hmm. 25 mm -hmm. years seems normal to think and it, we've had enough you know that's almost 25 years since i first got i mean i first mm -hmm. found out about strategic coaching next in, year next year will be 25 yeah yeah mm -hmm. uh, but i found mm -hmm. out about it a year before i actually joined because i had a friend and client at the time alan kearns who was part of your Program mm -hmm. introduced it to me. I went I remember to meet him. Mm -hmm. Yep, I went to meet him at at the offices there, and I was so impressed with the environment. Even I mean, the environment was amazing. That whole lofty kind of, and of course, Liberty Village wasn't Liberty Village back then. It was uh, out in the you know an in industrial kind of right. Yeah, it looked like it was an industrial complex that had survived had survived intact the war, but all the industry yeah. was gone. Open fields, uh, <laughs> broken glass, empty warehouses, some of the windows out. But and yeah, I remember then uh, I got a I got a copy of your How the Best Get Better was mm -hmm. the thing. When what year did you write? What year was How the Best Get Better? I think it was, you know, like probably about a year before you're talking about. So I think it was probably yeah. around 96, around 1996. Okay. So, yeah, it was, that came out, yeah. Well, we were, uh, okay. that's when we were sort of pack creating cassette packages, you know, where we'd yes, have a small got the book and, and, the we'd, cassette. and we'd have yeah. probably three cassettes, three cassettes with it. Yeah. Yes, yes. Cassettes, so that's what yeah. I got. And, so I remember that, and that was like my introduction to mm -hmm. strategic coaching. I listened to that and read that again and again. I got one and gave to to Jerry Ballinger and introduced that to Jerry and to Terry Hunnefeld and just and that's how mm -hmm. it all. That's where Joe Polish got. Um, yeah, Joe um, came in '97. Joe. Yeah. Joe came in 97. That was when Joe came in. Yeah, we've yeah. got, you know, I mean, uh, it's kind of funny. I have three in the free zone, yourself, Joe, 
and uh, Steve Krein came in in 97. So I know these states. Yeah. Isn't that something? But there's an example of you had, just to think about the impact of a knowledge product that you were calling mm-hmm. it, using it at the time. That was a little book with a big yep. concept. How the and gave me a lot better. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it falls nicely into your structure of VCR. Yeah. You know, I had a vision, a yeah. bit, you know, I gave a vision of uh-huh. high achievers, you know, what you could do, and then you have capability and then reach, you know, and uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was interesting. I did a free zone Friday, a two hour free zone. And mm-hmm. I've introduced a, a major new tool for the free zone called free zone ground rules. And mm-hmm. I have eight ground rules and there, it's a discussion piece. And and it was funny because Steve Krein was there and Steve is usually in any discussion is first off the mark. You know, you present any. Steve will have a very good question yeah. uh, about it. And and so the the first ground rule is that what holds a collaboration together is that both sides want to be a hero to the end, same end user. Uh-huh. Okay. That, that you're already independently of each other are creating value for an end user. And when yes. you compare notes, you realize that it's the same end user. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and right away, Steve said, yeah, well, he said, I know, you know, one of your collaborations is with Peter Diamandis with A360. And who do you see the end user there? And I said, well, you know, high achieving entrepreneurs who will benefit from understanding what technological breakthroughs can do for them in their future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, and I said, I'm kind of a knowledgeable civilian, but I can't hold myself out as an expert because I don't know who the players are. I don't really know, you know, right. the, the actual, you know, what the decisive difference is about any technology and where it's going and, and everything. But Peter Diamandis does. So what I decided was that if I give Peter an audience, he'll create nonstop content and he gets all the ownership of this and he gets all the money of this but i get his capability for 25 years Mm -hmm. and that was the deal you know and we're into our 10th year now we're in our 10th year with it and i know he's happy with the collaboration and i'm very happy with the collaboration so steve was saying well you know this can i ask you a question about this he said, and he said, it has to do with strategic coach, actually. And my question is, who's your end user now that you want to be a hero to? And he said, because as I understand that <clears throat> new entrepreneurs can't come in the program and have you as a coach. There was a period during the last 10 years when they could do that, but they can't do that anymore. And I said, right. yeah, I said, I'm not the best coach for the basics of the program. You know, because, you know, that was something I was doing 30 years ago. That was something, you know, 25 years ago. And uh, now I'm working on the new concepts that work for the entrepreneurs who are at the most advanced stages, which are yourself. And therefore, the end user for me is someone who will come into the program 
at a lower level, but within a matter of years, they'll be in the free zones. So that's mm-hmm. my end user. And then I'm looking for outside collaborations that would also support my free zone clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. and it was a great conversation. I mean, it went on and we have eight ground rules. And in the course of two hours, we got through two of them. Wow. Is there a free zone this week coming up? There's a, yeah, Thursday. Thursday yeah. is uh, Thursday is the free zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Yeah. 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 I'm going to try. And, and, I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. pop on. Starts, starts at 10 o'clock because it's 10 o'clock. Chicago Eastern, right. It's the Chicago, you know, it's the one in October is at nine o'clock Eastern. The one, on Thursday is in the 10 o'clock time zone. That's the only thing you got to be absolutely certain about to utilize Zoom properly to know which time zone an event is taking place in. Right. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to that. But that's interesting. So this whole idea of the ground rules, is that something we can talk about here or what what would be no yeah well what yeah i mean i don't remember that i don't remember them all because they're brand new it's brand new tool i created it Uh on thursday i created it on thursday and tested it out on friday which um, is lots of time i mean 24 hours to get ready for something that's as you right. know, it's lots of time. It's almost a luxury of time that you would yeah. be finished within what, 24 hours. <laughs> what am I going to do with all this time? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm kind of remiss. I should actually have it memorized by now. <laughs> yeah. But what, one of them, and number two is interesting, that as you're developing independently, so for example, Dean Jackson operating independently, Dan Sullivan, operating independently, uh, could these two individuals who are essentially creating, you know, thinking concepts for entrepreneurs, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. successful, high-achieving entrepreneurs, wouldn't they be competitors? And I said, no, uh, what you're doing is completely independent, and it'll grow and grow and grow. And what I'm doing is independent, and it'll grow and grow and grow. And if we never collaborated so let's say over the next 10 years, we didn't collaborate at all. We wouldn't be competing either. We wouldn't really be competing because you've got your universe and I've got my universe. But right. if we did collaborate yeah. and each of us knew how to make money our own way, it would be super creative. I think it would be super creative because yeah. uh, we're not putting our money on the table. We're not putting our ownership on the table. We're just putting our capability on the table. Yeah, I look at that. Like when you're saying this idea, a lot of the things that I do have, I would say, a a bigger impact on the entrepreneurs that are, once they figure out what it is that they, who they want to be a hero to and what they want to uh, do, is creating the algorithm that helps them 10x to get mm-hmm. to the point where they are now free to think about free zone 
collaborations. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's really the, where I have the biggest impact, I think, for, yeah. for entrepreneurs is figuring out how to create the engine that, that drives them, you know, getting to the point mm-hmm. of being, of, of growing their business to where they can have a self-managing, uh, self-growing um, company based on the yeah. scale-ready algorithm. And that's where yeah. your everything that the you know the 10 times sort of version of strategic coach is really i think that's where it meshes the most yeah is that your observation yeah i mean uh, yeah yeah well uh, the model you know the vcr example that in yeah. our last uh, podcast the macy that's suited toys, for the free zone mm-hmm. toys or us i said you know that's just a a no-brainer because never in their history did Macy's and Toys or Toys R Us ever compete, you know. But in fact, they have the same end user yeah. in the sense that families, family. There's a lot of what Macy's does, which is great for the families, and Toys R Us are really great for children who are in families, you know, mm-hmm. and and. I said, it's just, uh, it's just a no brainer, you know, unless they really, uh, you know, have a goal of screwing it up, there shouldn't be any screwing up of this, of this model, Mm -hmm. because neither is asking the other to do anything except what they're really good at. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that, and there's thousands of opportunities for two capabilities to get together where all each of them is required to do is just do what you're doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if there's excess capacity, that's really mm-hmm. the, that's the big thing. Or they're lacking either, uh, they're lacking something, you know, that there's mm-hmm. something that, for for them to to supply for themselves what they're lacking is a long drag. It's a long expensive drag. Yeah. And as long as they're not worried, you know, about money, you know, as long right. as they're not worried about money, then they can acquire a capability almost for nothing. Okay. Yeah. Because in fact they the well, Macy's had spare capability which was uh, space, mm-hmm. space and location. Macy's had yeah. spare capability. Four hundred. They have four hundred yeah. spaces uh, yeah. everywhere in the U.S. And yeah. Toys R Us, Toys R Us had spare capacity that yeah. that you know families and children will buy any toy already available and newly created if they're just given a place to actually see them, you know, actually yeah, you play look with at them. The and, things, even if you took the the top 20% of the toys that would be in a standalone Toys R Us, the top 20% are going to account for 80% of the sales. And you put it into, you know, the 20% of the space, you know, you know I mean, Macy's giving up, 20% their bottom 20% of the space that's not selling, you know, per square foot what it could consolidating there, you know, they could certainly get by 
with 80% of the space that they have in the store. Yeah. Right now, it's making- Toys, uh, yeah. Toys R Us are giving up the top 80% of their yeah. cost of space. space. Yeah. And they're, uh, but the other thing is that they're acquiring, they're acquiring traffic that Macy's will have anyway. It's, it's yeah. Macy's traffic, but, and they don't have to pay for the traffic that comes into the, to the store. Right. Uh, and then they say, Oh, Toys R Us there too. So let's, let's bring the kids too. You know, sort of, you know, we've got yeah. uh, pr- birthdays coming up. We've got Christmas coming up. We've got all sorts of things. So while we're at Macy's, why don't we take the kids with us? And the other thing is that Toys R Us brings the traffic with that Macy's wouldn't ordinarily get, but it becomes available yeah. when they come. Yeah. The one thing that's going to hold the, hold the, the, the model together is a really good food court. A really good what? Food court. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, that's where the that's the model of where I see the next ghost restaurant yeah. going. Is yeah, and that. let's say you have a let's mm-hmm. say you have a ghost kitchen who handles yeah. the food court. Yeah. Yes. We can get all those things. It's such a yeah. The world is just when you put on your free zone glasses. And with the the VCR attachment, there's so much opportunity. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, you won't even put on the glasses if you don't have the mindset, uh, at least some mindsets that are moving you in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, really, I was just noticing on this. U.S. has now uh, created a collaboration with Australia and U.K. to create a Southeast Asia fleet, a combined fleet of oh, really? Australia, yeah, I did Australia the, the U.K., and, and the United States. And it's a no-brainer because the U.S. has massive amounts of excess hardware. Yes. You know, I mean, Australia doesn't have to spend any money to create. Yeah. The, they have to spend money on training, you know, but that's, yes. uh, but they can get submarines. They can get, you know, I mean, they can get anything they want. The U.S. Um, US always has stuff on the shelf. And, and the U.K., you know, is, uh, you know, the U.K. Uh, was the global power before the United States, especially the global. Um, yeah. Fleet, fleet power. They had the greatest fleet in the world for about uh, 200 years before the U.S. And they're cousins. These are all cousins. You know, these are not strangers. They more or less operate by the same, you know. Yeah. In other words, the re- the reasons why any one of the three would fight are exactly the same. You know, it's yeah. protection of certain values and everything like that. And uh, it's so funny because the French are withdrew their withdrew the uh, ambassador from Washington and from Canberra, the Australian capital. I don't know if they've done it from London. They're just outraged that they've been excluded, you know, the sales of these weapons because they make these weapons too. And apparently Australia had a contract with, uh, with France for 
nuclear submarines and they canceled it, you know. And oh. and and now they they're up in the air about it. But uh, you know, but what are the French doing with Southeast Asia anyway? They, they have no presence there. You know, and so it's an interesting thing, but you get collaborations everywhere. I'm just putting that out as an example. I don't want to go down the road of a geopolitical discussion. But what I'm saying is that any area of human activity, you can see that there's surplus that could match up with someone else's need for a greater capability and vice versa, that you could create a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And thinking Mm -hmm. long-term like those, like I brought up that conversation about the VISTA, like being able to see long-term differently mm-hmm. at 55. Cause I remember when I started in, you know, I was 31 and it was a five year vision was a, I didn't even know what was going to be, you know, certain in five years in my own life. And I wonder mm-hmm. now, do you remember any, when the Vista kind of changed for you, like, I imagine now, even at 77, you've got a even wider scope because yeah. you certainly now you have a perfect recollection of 50 years yeah. going back to being an adult still and knowing that I imagine that's um, still just like yesterday. Too. Yeah, well, the, the at 50, I was a uh, copywriter in a big uh, advertising agency. So that was, yeah. that was that 70, was 71. And mm-hmm. but by 74, I had gone out on my own. So 74 mm-hmm. is really the some 47 years. And I went out and I started coaching one on one in 74. Yeah. So that's really the start. You're about 30 years and, old or. Yeah, it was exactly 30 and yeah, yeah, exactly 30. And, and it was tough, you know, I mean, I had sort of a thought, I had sort of an idea, but what I didn't have is a marketplace that was feeling an urgent need for what I was creating. And, Mm. and so it was, it was a very tough first, you know, first 10 years. And it's, you know, it's kind of the proof of your, you know, it's kind of like your vision for yourself before you have capability requires a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went bankrupt twice. I went through a divorce, but I was pretty, one, one is I had worked, you know, I was an employee at the ad agency and I had been an employee at the FBI in, you know, when I was 18, 19 and 20. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was in, kind of an employee in the army, if you want to call that. Uh, I think that's in another category. And then, you, you know, years at college and everything else. And I knew one thing that I wasn't quite sure of my entrepreneurial career, but I was absolutely certain I did not have an employment career. Mm-hmm. In other words, I was very clear what I would never do again. I know this isn't clear. right. Yeah. Yeah, I was very clear what I would never do again. I wasn't clear how I would enjoy that. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I mean, yeah. oh, I think everybody's got an experience that 
hits yeah. those nerves. That hits those yeah, nerves. Yeah. 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 So that, but that's useful because uh, then it's just a matter of getting smarter. You know, it's, you know, in other words, I was completely committed to the part of my life that wasn't working. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And I was totally then, rejecting the, I was totally rejecting the part of my life that would have been okay. Yes. I wonder when did you, you probably weren't thinking 25 years then at a time, were you, or where, where did that, what was the, do you remember? No, I, was, uh, I, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about next month's rent. <laughs> okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully this will work out. Right. You know, and I'm, you know, I've got skills. I'm a, I'm a writer and I've got good artistic skills. So, you know, I could do, you know, I could do cash flow projects, you know, I, I was okay with, you know, kind of doing other people's work in order to meet cash flow until I could get a solid foundation, a solid independent foundation under my feet. But it took 10 years, it took 10 oh. years before that happened. And the crucial thing was meeting Babs in 82. Yeah. And then we really put our heads together around 84 because she had a, her own entrepreneurial company. She, you know, she was a very top of the line massage therapist and nutritionist from around 78 to 84. And Mm -hmm. she was, but there's no growth in that business. You know, that if you look ahead 10 years, it's really no different from, what you're doing right now. Right, she, exactly. got, she got very excited about my strategy circle ideas, which was uh-huh. um, the first tool, you know, it's actually the first tool, thinking tool I ever created. And I, one afternoon, I just said, I'll, I'll take you through it. I said, well, let's just look at your business and I'll just take you through the, you know, the strategy circle. You know, what's your vision? What are the obstacles? What's the transformation that's needed and what action you have to take? And it was about two or three hours. And we got yeah. finished and I had it all drawn out on a big, you know, pad, big mm-hmm. art pad. I was working with, you know, markers and, mm-hmm. and, you know, hand printing stuff and everything else. And so when we got finished, she said, this is going to be really big. And I said, your business is going to be really big. No, I said, not my business isn't going to be big at all. But what you're doing with this thinking process is going to be really big. And she mm-hmm. said, I'd. Re-, she said, I'm. I'm going to bring what I'm doing to a close. And I'm going. If you're up to it, she says, I'll join you. And there's just lots of things that you're, you know, that you're lacking. There's just lots of things that you're. From my perspective, you're not doing correctly, but you shouldn't be spending your time thinking thinking about that and doing it. So, the really mm-hmm. a unique ability concept came in very early there, mm-hmm. and my lifestyle, my daily way of taking care of myself or not taking care of myself could use some improvement. And, and, and Babs has a good handle on that. So uh, that's when it really started, you know, and that, and then right off the bat, it started clicking, you know, people who I talked about three years before, all of a sudden, around 84 started 
phony and said, you know that thinking process you have? We've been thinking about it. You know, could you come in and work with us? So from 84 onwards, it, it really, you know, it really got traction and positive yeah. cash flow. And yeah, yeah, it was really good. And so that partnership would be one of the breakthroughs. I think the combination of the strategy circle as a thinking process and partnership with Babs was yeah. a was a and it was a collaboration, and um, yeah. you know which is at the center of everything to this day, and and then the big thing was having six years, basically five years of experience out in the marketplace with one-on-one coaching which mm-hmm. uh, enabled us to see how we could do it with workshop coaching. And workshop coaching mm-hmm. was the, and that's 89, November of 89. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Wow. And then other coaches, that becomes another huge breakthrough, you know, so, you know, and, and then really zeroing in on the kind of entrepreneur, which, we're really into today. You know, it's not every entrepreneur. It's a particular type of entrepreneur. Yes. Were you, do you remember anything that was the eye opener to the 25 year framework for you? Because when you're the introduction of that to me, yeah, and I remember yeah. it being a profound shift for me that I could, I can, I, no, I can tell you, I can, and it wasn't, you were already in the program before it happened. Yeah. Uh, And it it had to do with a personal project that I had started in 1978. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, that I felt that the reason why things weren't working, that would be in business and also be a failed marriage was I wasn't really telling myself what I wanted. You know, mm-hmm. I was kind of basing everything on what I needed. And I said, yes. yeah, but that's not really going to get you. And I said, that's what got you to your present state of failure is that you were only focusing on what you needed or thought you needed or mm-hmm. being told by other people what you needed. But you're not really telling yourself what you really want. So I started journaling in 1978, the end of 1978, New Year's Eve. And I said, First of all, I said, nobody in the world cares whether Dan Sullivan's successful or not. So, and right now I I look like a failure. And so, and I'm not noticing that this is a crisis in anyone else's life, that Dan Sullivan is a failure. So Mm. I'm kind of, I'm kind of free to do anything I want to do. And for the next 25 years, I'm going to keep a daily journal. And in that journal, I have to write at least one sentence, that's the requirement per day, where Mm -hmm. you say, I want such and such. And uh, so it could be a sentence, it could be a paragraph, it could be a whole page, but Mm -hmm. it's I want, but I can't say the word because. Uh, Yeah, I just want what I want. I just want, I want, why do you want Mm -hmm. it? I want it, I want it because I want it. It took me about, I would I would say probably took me about ten years to really stop justifying wanted it and just accept yeah. that I wanted it. I wanted it because I wanted it. Really, it's very fundamental. It's a very fundamental breakthrough, you know. And it's uh, yeah. 
And what I found is that it, if you tell people that, you know, well, that's really great. You're doing that. Why? Now, why do you want that? And I said, oh, I just want it because I want it. And they said, no, it's in service of, no, it's not in service of anything. I just want it because I want it. And they said, yeah. uh, well, that's kind of selfish. That's very self-centered. And and I said, maybe not. And I said, but why do you care? <laughs> right. That's a little selfish. What, uh, yeah. <laughs> what are you up to? <laughs> what are you up to? Yeah. What do you want? You know, what do you want? Yeah. And I found that none of them could say I want something unless they added the justification, you know, at the end. Yeah. You know, well, the reason why I want to be successful is so I can devote myself to world peace. And I said, mm. the first part of it is true. The second part is fiction. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You're creating a story to, uh, to tell the person, well, I'm not doing all this work for myself. You know, I'm doing this for uh, the sake of humanity. And I said, you got to get to the point where you're just doing it because you want it. <laughs> no, and, and somebody, I'm just uh, talking to my, and I'm just talking to myself there. I'm not saying that other people have to operate this way, but I had a problem. Mm-hmm. I had to solve it, and it was because I wasn't really telling myself what I wanted just because I wanted it, you know. And so uh, when I met you, '97, I had been at this for 19 years, and yes. and I think I was already thinking. So I don't know the. 25 year and I said you know this 25 year thing is really great you can really transform your life in 25 years you know yeah. I mean you can go through a complete personal yes. individual organizational transformation well, it's a if whole you just other give life. yourself yeah you can give yourself 25 years and yeah. I said and every quarter and then you break it down into 100 quarters and I said you know so yeah, you got this 25-year thing, but actually you get 100 quarters. because So 90% of your thinking and your effort can just be about the next 90 days. You know, sum up your progress, and then you get another 25 days. Uh, twenty, uh, you, you get another, you know, at the end of every quarter, check in with your 25-year vision. Come back, yes. uh, set out another 90. So you get 100 cracks to transform your 25 years and there was something satisfying about that i mean that's what that's what's fascinating right but i want to have something to say about that but you when you were talking about wanting what you want always with the reason somebody just showed me a video today at the coffee shop about the something about uh fish love was the uh things it was a rabbi who was saying that mm-hmm. about somebody is grilling some fish and they said that uh why are you grilling the fish and this guy said well i just love fish and the <laughs> rabbi said so you love fish so you you know, take a rod and you pull the fish out of its environment and you kill it and cook it so you can eat it <laughs> and that's you loving the fish. <laughs> and he said, the reality is that you love yourself and you will kill the fish to get what you want, which is the fish. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what we call it. You love. And when we translate that, that's so often in our relationships, we do that same thing, what we're calling love. 
is uh, we love ourselves and we're doing yeah. something to justify it or whatever, calling it the wrong thing, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. But e- even uh, the person who, uh, even the person who says that they're uh, frying the fish because they love fish is mm-hmm. miles ahead of the person say, well, I'm actually, I'm preparing it now because we're inviting some people over and these people are very important to us. And yeah. you know, fish sort of seems the thing that every, you know, and I said, no, could have, it could have been, it could have been hot dogs. It could have been. And I said, I said, you don't have to add the fiction to it. I mean, if you're, yeah. you know, at least tell yourself the truth, you know? You, yeah. I mean, if you, if you need fiction for your relationships, go ahead and make up a story. But at least for yourself, don't make up a story. You're doing it because you want it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I'm, I'm doing something that, the reason I say about 25 um, years as a framework is... I've been experimenting with a little twilight series in my mind here that what I'm doing is each night as I go to bed or, you know, when you're kind of thinking your way to uh, sleep or your mind is still kind of going, I've been playing a series in my mind. I've been looking back. I've been revisiting a one year starting in 19... 19- 76, you know, going back that uh, love from when I was 10 kind of thing going forward and revisiting as much as I can remember about that year. And then the next night I'll think about 1977 and 1988. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that now. I'm up to 1990. Now I've been doing it for about 12, 12 days. And it's a really interesting thing. Oh, it's great. How, yeah. yeah. How much, like, when you sit and think about uh, a thing, I think about how many lives I've lived in my 55 mm-hmm. years here, yeah. you know? Well, the other thing is the memories are there, but they're not yeah. accessible. But they're not accessible unless you have a reason for bringing them forward. Right. You've just given yourself a reason for bringing forward a year's worth of experience and not the year before or the year after, but just that year. Yeah. Yeah. And the memories are there because they're connected to each other. Right. And the other thing is you're making them up fresh anyway, and you're, you're bringing to the surface and taking a look at things which happened 30 years ago or 20, yeah. 25 years ago. Yeah. But you're bringing them forward, only those that are really useful to you now and useful into the, into the future. Right. Yeah. And that's, so my intention is to go this series all the way forward to today and then imagine it out into the future to imagine what are the, you know, next year and the year yeah. after like what what is going to what can i imagine or see 10 years yeah. from now like what's really gonna change you know you know what's great about this is let's just say when you're you know you've completed 25 years on this 
Yeah. And uh, here's what I can guarantee will happen. You'll have some real zingers for every year. Like there'll be a yeah. zinger. There'll yeah. be a decision, an action, or an outcome every year. And then yeah. you'll say, and each of these years has a fundamental lesson that yeah. without realizing it until I did this exercise, that is actually a foundation of how I'm looking at my future, yeah. looking at my future. And I have to tell you, you get a million people who'd want to know about this, but oh, only because we're living in Cloudlandia. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <clears throat> Other, otherwise, you're just boring the shit out of your neighbors in celebration. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. If you're asking them to listen, you better be giving them free food, Dean. <laughs> yeah, right. No, you're the only one I've told about this. I mean, that's yeah, because I know you can appreciate it. But that, yeah. yeah so you know, 1990, I'm up to, but you know, 1988 was a pivotal year because that's. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember so clearly being on Lars Ekdal's boat with my doubles partner, Johan, and having a philosophical conversation about the, you know, shrinking runway of a tennis player and how, you know, Lars went through that same thing. And the words that he came to for him were, you know, I wonder what the 180th ranked businessman in the world is making right now. And he decided to switch games and, and get into <laughs> the business game. He was sharing that as wisdom to Johan and I. And that, to me, that was 100% the right words at the right time. Oh, and yeah. that was in the spring. That was in the spring of 1988. And I immediately went back to Canada, arranged to get my real estate license. And by November of 1988, I was a newly minted real estate agent yeah. at 21, playing, setting up to play the longest game. As you know, and that was an advantage then. I was able to yeah. have thought about myself because our contemporaries at the time, some of the tournaments I was um, playing in, you know, we were playing and Andre Agassi was just coming out, you know, making his kind of debut. This kid with blue hair and uh, crushing it. That was in the mid eighties. And yeah. so all these kids. So I looked at it that at 21, starting in business, I dropped out of college and got going. And that would have given, you know, a, a two year, it felt like I was a two year head start on being a business prodigy with yeah. a long runway. That was my first introduction to thinking, you know, kind of on the big picture that there's no, I can go as fast as I can. And my youth or my age is an advantage, not a disadvantage mm -hmm. because it's only going to get more and more valuable. 
Well, that was yeah. a fun revisit for my 1988. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. Athletes are a good example of it, and child stars or teenage stars in the entertainment yeah. business are a good example of it. Mm-hmm. And that is, they get the, they're successful before they appreciate their success. You know, mm-hmm. and that happens with athletes too, you know, that they have this high point and that, you know, I mean, if they're really good, they're, you know, they're certainly nationally known yeah. or they're, they're uh, in some sports, they're, they're known throughout the world and it can happen, you know, like you're 25 years old and you're world famous and you've been at the top and the problem is you look ahead and you know there's people who live 50, 60 years longer than you are right now. And is there anything you're going to do that's as good and as exciting as what you've already done? Right. And I've met them. I mean, I've met, Yeah. I've met, you know, I have over the last, you know, 40, 45, 47 years of coaching entrepreneurs. I've probably met two dozen you know, entrepreneurs who were top of the line, not entertainers so much, but athletes, they, you know, they played in the national football league. They, you know, they were They played in on major league baseball teams and everything like that. And, and it's an advantage to them in what they're doing right now because it opens doors, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, in other words, somebody played in a world series, you know, played for, uh, right you know, a professional, one of the major league baseball teams, and that'll open their door, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the occupation that they're doing right now. Okay. And people don't want to hear about what their profession is. They want to hear the stories of their previous life. Yes. Yeah. And And it's a sad and it's a sad thing. It's a very sad mm-hmm. thing. And I've watched them. Be, and, uh, you know, not the same thing, but but a different, totally different previous experience. I When I joined the ad agency in Toronto, 1971, June of 1971, this was the number two agency in Canada. It never became number one, but it, number two was big. It was coast to coast. Mm-hmm. They had offices in, you know, 10 cities and, you know, and, you know, it was big for Canada. And, and so you have, you know, you have your copywriters, you have your artists, you have your, you know, you have your, you know, all the different skills that are required to be a successful corporation. But there was one guy here, and he was the traffic manager for all the production of the work. And so, in other words, Mm -hmm. uh, he had an overview of all the different projects and what the deadlines were. And his his job was just to keep everybody on schedule so that the projects could be finished. And he was a Brit. He, you know, he he had emigrated from the UK. Yeah. 70s, maybe he did it in the 50s. I don't know what his history was. And But when you walked into his office, all his pictures were of young men with spitfires. Because when he was 18, 19 years old, he had been one of the few, you know, the Winston Churchill's, the few 
who saved Britain from the Germans, you know, the Spitfire and Hurricane pilots. Right. And he was one of them. And you saw pictures of him. It was hard to see him because he had put on about, you know, you know, he had he wasn't the lean, muscular warrior that right. he had been at 18 or 19. And and the other thing is, he said, you see this for he says, there's 10 of us here. He says, five of them were dead within six months after the picture was taken. You know, and he was telling all these, wow. these stories. And, you know, and I just got the sense I had this real, I could sense his sadness. And it was kind mm-hmm. of sad that nothing in this man's life was ever going to match the importance and the meaning of what had already happened to him by the time he was 20 years old. Right. Yeah, that's wild, right? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of like and, thinking about those being like a one-hit wonder. Uh, yeah. Music. I was watching uh, YouTube last night. One one hit wonder. Yeah. I will survive. I will survive. Okay. Gloria yeah. Gaynor, and, is that, is and that one? it yeah. was number one. Uh, she was number one. I will survive. Uh-huh. Went right to the top of the hit charts, and yeah. uh, I mean, if you're going to have a one, if you're a one-hit wonder, yeah, uh, make sure it's number. <laughs> make sure it's not the number ten hit. Make sure it's the number right. one. Number hit. one, yeah. Because thirty-five years later, yeah, they're bringing on Gloria Gaynor and she's singing "I Will Survive," and the whole audience goes crazy. And and my Kathy Davis, my Kathy, who's my uh, great internal partner on producing workshop materials, yeah. she's got it. At, she's got it as her cell phone answer. You know that somebody calls her, it's Gloria Gaynor. I just saw I the thing. Uh, what made me think of that was it's. Rick Springfield's birthday was recently. He's 72 mm-hmm. years old. 72 years old. And his Jesse's Girl song, you know, you think about he, mm-hmm. had a, he had a string of three or four hits in that four year period there from 1980 yeah. to 1984. But, you know, the YouTube thing was showing him at 72 out playing Jesse's Girl, you know. He's lived his whole life just dining out on Jesse's. Have you heard that in the that saying in the South, dining out? Like if you've got a good, you're a good, you got good stories, you could dine out. I mean, people would want to <laughs> take you out for dinner too. Uh, so he's been dining <laughs> yeah. out on that on his Jesse's. Oh, well, and it's and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, fame has its own value. You know, what I mean that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think there's a skill that goes along with it. You know, like uh, nobody, yeah. not everybody has the skill of being being able to be famous. Yes. And, but my feeling is that most of the people who have it don't know what it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, the best thing ever, though, there was, a, there's actually a show on VH1 called One Hit Wonders, and it's kind of like a, where are they now? And yeah. it was some, I don't know who it was, because I wish I could credit them with saying it, but they asked them, you know, how does it feel like having just had the one hit, you know, like implying that he must feel like a letdown, you know, that you didn't really go on to big success. And they totally reframed it and said, listen, 
you know, in the big picture of music success, one hit wonder is pretty high up there. And we've been able to, all we ever wanted to do was not have jobs and play music. And I've been able to do that my whole life because of that one hit. So I'm pretty happy about it. (laughs) I don't think about it as a a success. Everybody knows their name. You know something? You started this podcast, though, talking about your different relationship with time now in the 1990s. And my sense is that you can strive for the one-hit wonder. Or yeah. you can say, I'm going to use the next 25 years with 100 quarters yeah. just to transform my life into everything I wanted. And that, yeah. that doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with having a number one hit. Yeah. That's true. I mean, yeah, I find really... one hit wonders a bit like hoping that the lottery winner today is your number. You know, it's, mm. it's hoping that you have enormous luck today and i said if you have to i think you know luck is luck you know and you know and i I, i'm not knocking it i don't want to have bad luck right right it's not my it's not not the main thing i'm trying to master in life is luck i'm trying to master real uniquely valuable skill that other people will pay for but even luck requires action and that's the interesting Thing about it, right? It's that you're putting yourself in a situation where luck is going to pay off. Luck can only yeah. pay off if you. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, if you want to score a goal, you have to take the shot, you know. I mean, that's uh, right, yeah. I mean, uh, the great Canadian philosopher uh, Wayne Gretzky said that he missed all yeah. the shots that he didn't take. Yeah. But you imagine, Dan, if you could get in the hot tub time machine and go back and actually revisit each of those years for that time frame, you know, knowing, you know, that you were on the right track with certain things Mm -hmm. that you made the right, you know, choice or you being able to confidently go all in on that choice that maybe you delayed for a period of time. Yep. Yep. August 13th, 1982. Seven okay. o'clock. That's uh, that's the moment I met Babs. Oh wow! There it is. Yep. There's before that all my years before that. Yeah. There's all my years after that. Wow, that's something. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yep. Free zone collaboration. Yep. 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 And uh, yeah, great. Ta- great. I mean, great thing. But I love what you're doing, and I think you know it, it'll be interesting create now, some, so. to, to kind of create some categories of the the big gains, the big gains yeah. from each of, each of the years, you know. And yeah. I, I think you'll have a major piece of intellectual capital when you finish mm-hmm. all 25 years. Yeah. Well, we're at 1990 now, so by next week, Dan, we'll be right up to when we met. <laughs> yep. There we go. Yeah. I'll have so, you when you come to the if you come to the workshop next Thursday. I'll have you just yeah. chat about it. Yeah. Okay, I will. Yeah, and, and and here's the neat thing about 
about what you're doing, who's to argue with you? Right, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, that's the thing is, I'm probably arguing, you know, we're, I don't know how reliable our memories are. I think it's been proven that we reshape our memories, you know. Uh, Dean, I'm going to give you a different perspective. The only mm -hmm. question is how creative is your memory? Right. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> how creative is your memory? <laughs> yeah. That's the remember, uh, re always remember entertainment trumps accuracy. That's right. If you're going to dine out on a memory. And who's, to prove you, and who's to prove you wrong? It's like yeah, I That's was right. talking in the, at the opportunity where Joe Polish introduced me to, to what's his name? The, Richard Branson? No, Cooper, uh, the singer, the entertainer. Oh, Alice okay. Cooper and his wife. And he, I, we got into the fact that he has a late night serious, serious, you know, the satellite network. It's nighttime with Alice Cooper, where he t oh, retells right. the, the history of rock and roll, 50s, 60s. And and anyway, and I listened to it a couple of nights, and he's terrific. I mean, he's just got a terrific style, and he's a great storyteller and everything else. And he's, I asked him why he does it, and he says, well, first of all, it's therapeutic. He says, you know, going back, he's doing what you're doing, right? You know, he was yeah. doing, and he said, the other thing is, it's really neat. He says, I can say anything I want because all the other witnesses are dead. <laughs> he's the keeper of the memories that's right yeah he says anything i say about it it's like churchill winston churchill at the end yeah. of the second world second world war they said how do you think history will treat you he says i think history is going to treat me really well and the reason is because i'm going to be the one that writes the history so that's great <laughs> I love it. That is so funny. You're writing your history. You're writing your I, history, Dean. I am. Yeah. I am indeed.